Because of a deadly piece of shrapnel lodged in Tony Stark's heart, each breath that he takes depends on a small chest device, which supplies the energy to keep him alive. Yet in the transistor-powered costume of Iron Man, he can move like unleashed lightning. His flexible iron armor withstands destructive forces almost beyond measure. And his electronic muscle power is greater than the strength of a hundred men. Hey there, and welcome to Marvel by the Month. My name's Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Rob, uh, we're in week uh, 732 of quarantine. Um, How is it going? Still okay. We've had, we did finally hit our first like you know what you're really getting on my nerves kind of discussion. Yeah. Uh, Barb's a I call it like iterative nest perfection. Uh, <laughs> is so when she's here a lot, she sees everything, and uh, I, I'm surprised I haven't had to repaint a room or something by now. But yeah, um, yeah. And I, so I'm just I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm always happy to, when she asks me to help with something, but it's like when I'm in the middle of work and walking downstairs to get water, I'm like, I can't do that, that chore now, but i certainly will after this next phone call. So <laughs> it's just, there's a, a lot of those negotiations and it finally hit a little bit of a bristling point, but otherwise we've been still just enjoying, uh, enjoying the house, enjoying each other's company, taking walks, not in the park because the park is full of people and some, somebody, I don't know which paper or TV station was like Mount Tabor park is a great place to get away while you're trying to clear your head during this quarantine. And we're like, it was already terrible. Yeah. So yeah. We just walk, <laughs> we've walked to like 82nd instead of going to Mount Tabor <laughs> Park. Uh, yeah, that's how it is. Yeah. So, you know. That's that's really funny for those of us who live in Portland and know what 82nd is. Um, uh, I don't know exactly how to describe 82nd to folks who are not from around here, but um, it's, uh, we'll say it's not necessarily um, scenic or pedestrian friendly. Yeah, it's like for Detroit, it's similar to eight or 10 mile. It's like, there you go. There's two points of reference. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Things are going okay here. Um, My kid had a birthday this week. He turned seven on Wednesday. So, you know, we kind of racked our brains, you know, because he can't go anywhere. He can't see any of his friends. He can't have a party. So it's like, you know, how do you make a birthday special under those conditions and not make him feel like, you know, just acutely aware of all the things he's missing out on? Um, So we just decided screw it. It's Christmas. Um, and we put up the Christmas tree after he fell asleep and we decorated the living room with all of our Christmas lights and decorations and things like that. And then, um, it, it blew his little mind. Um, it was really great. Uh, I think it, it legitimately was one of his favorite birthdays ever. Um, even, you know, not even grading on the, the quarantine curve. Um, but I think he, he just absolutely had a blast. It's, you know, his favorite time of year, um, for, you know, lots of reasons, we played Christmas music, which uh, I I do not allow in the house uh, after New Year's or before uh, Thanksgiving. So that was also a treat. So. Yeah, I saw uh, some pictures on Facebook, and that looked uh, it. You just won the you know parent award. You know, that <laughs> Jack yeah. is very lucky to have you. Yeah, you know, could have gone either way, but uh, we I think we figured out a way to make it special, and and um, that's really all that matters, you know, because you only turn seven once. So, yeah, so we're back here again. We're doing this thing and uh, we have a special guest joining us who's who's waited very patiently and quietly um, <laughs> off in his uh, quarantine bunker. Um, so uh, please welcome back to the uh, podcast, the co-creator of Pink Hearts, 
Uh, also, our first guest ever uh, with Jess Crayons, uh, Mr. Levi Buchanan. Good evening, gentlemen. Happy March 88th. Sure. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing all right. You know, I'm hanging in there. You know, what's the baseline right now is that, you know, if, you know, your, your friends and family are, you know, all healthy and that's everything after that's gravy. Yep. yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so you were, I believe you were our last guest on the podcast before the quarantine. Yeah, um, I blew a couple of my last hours <laughs> of free stay-at-home freedom with you palookas. Yep. Watching that that Fantastic Four movie, too. Oh, man. Yeah. The yeah, Roger all... Corman movie. It wasn't just a podcast. We sat together and watched that first. So yeah. you, you spent a lot of a very valuable time now that we look back extremely valuable time doing that <laughs> i do it in a heartbeat again oh that's, we'll, 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 get a, we'll get a different disease and we'll just do this all over again yeah i i just you know I'm, I'm trying to figure out like if we jinxed you or if you jinxed us or if collectively we jinxed the world i'm just really hoping that you know after this episode comes out that i I don't even want to jinx it by saying I don't know what could be worse than this, but um, <laughs> hopefully there's nothing uh, nothing lurking around the corner uh, just waiting for us to test fate once again. Yeah, even I, who am I, I, I love making jokes like that that make pe- superstitious people feel very uncomfortable. Yes, um, but but at this point in the darkest timeline, uh, I don't even make those jokes. Uh, well, you know, it, this is also a pretty special episode um, that we're we are celebrating here. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, this is the first episode of year two of Marvel by the Month. Wow! Yeah, we've congratulations, been doing this. guys. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Uh, we so we did uh, 53 episodes in 52 weeks um, because. Uh, on Halloween, we had a bonus episode, an extra episode that uh, Douglas Wolk uh, joined us for. Um, and this is episode number 54. So, yeah, this is the the beginning of the second year. Uh, I wow. am honestly astounded uh, that we have done as many of these as we have done and that we so far have not missed a week. That is the that is the most incredible part. I think um I, I mean I didn't expect of course that we'd still be doing this in a year. <laughs> uh, I ne- I never looked that far ahead. But right. uh, <laughs> the fact that we have done it consistently is is the really amazing thing. If I have a superpower, um it's just being able to organize things really well uh, and stick to a schedule. So that is the power I, I most seek in people that, I, <laughs> that I, I both live with and work with because uh, that's not always my best uh, power. Yeah. I can, I can wander off with shiny things. It's tricky. So, yeah. It's super tricky. Levi, some folks have had very uh, fertile creative periods during the shelter in place uh, stuff. Some folks are just, you know, excited if they can get out of bed and get back into bed at the end of the day. Where are you on that continuum? So in the beginning of the stay at home and the quarantine, I think it was you know, between the existential dread of that, mm. you know, just the onslaught of work uh, and, and, and news and just balancing everything as we all try to figure out like what the next, it's not even trying to figure out what the new normal is. You're just trying to figure out what the next six hours look like. Sure. <laughs> and um, it just creatively uh, strangled me. Uh, or it strangled my creativity. Like I just did not get a lot of stuff done. 
And then something kicked loose in me. I think it's just as I got a little bit more adjusted um, a couple weeks ago, something just kicked loose. And um, every morning I would get up early, every night I would stay up late. And in just under two weeks, I finished uh, first draft of the, the new screenplay. Wow. Um, Thanks. Yeah, it's uh, it was re- it felt really good. Like something just sort of unlocked. I think it helped to outline. Yeah. Uh, and and when I say outline, I mean like over outline, not just like write down some beats. I mean just nail this thing down scene by scene by scene, so you can just kind of move through the three acts. Right. Move right. Through the eight sequences. Um, so that's been amazing. Uh, issue two of Pink Hearts is moving along. Uh, Melissa, our artist, has sent over some fantastic inks in the last few days. Um, interesting thing uh, about about what Melissa's been up to during this uh, this quarantine is she is the originator of the uh, six fan arts hashtag. Really, the one that you have seen comic artists and animators all around the world yeah. um, have picked up on, and um, yeah, she started that. That's incredible. Cool. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. She's she's phenomenal. She is. Hugely talented, and Jess and I are extremely lucky that we got to work with her and continue to work with her. You know, at this yeah. point in her career, because she is going to be—I um, think she's going to be a superstar in the comics world. That's awesome. Well, the first nice. issue of Pink Hearts was so great. I can't wait to see the Thank second you. one. Um, and I'm excited so, about it. Yeah, and and hopefully many more. I mean, if there's still a comics industry left uh, after this whole thing, um, I really would love someone to pick up Pink Hearts. Uh, if anyone within the sound of my voice uh, has a comics <laughs> publishing company that's looking for content, you could do much worse than Pink Hearts. <laughs> that's it is true. This, it is such a sweet story. It is the uh, antidote for the dread and malaise of right now. It absolutely is. Uh, Speaking of dread and malaise, let's talk about what was going on in 1965. (laughs) That's that's another one of my patented professional quality transitions. Um, The pro segue. (laughs) So uh, before we uh, we jump into talking about uh, all of our comics for this month, uh, we are going to start off as we always do by filling in a little bit of detail around um, what was going on in the world uh, in August 1965 when these comics were hitting the stands. Yeah, on uh, August 3rd, 1965, after coming under attack by Viet Cong sniper fire, U.S. Marines burned down the South Vietnamese village of Cam Ne, uh, using flamethrowers, cigarette lighters, and bulldozers, was the quote. Um, the Marines were accompanied by CBS reporter Morley Safer and a cameraman. Uh, American TV viewers were shocked when they saw a film of the attack on the CBS Evening News, and U.S. President Lyndon Johnson was infuriated by the CBS decision to show the Vietnam War in an unfavorable light. So this <laughs> is the first time that brought the war to people's living rooms yeah. that you always hear about. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, I think the most telling bit of that was that Lyndon Johnson was infuriated, not that his Marines burned down a Vietnamese village, but that CBS decided to show the footage with <laughs> yep. you know, the, the reporter and cameraman that they knew they had embedded with them as they were doing it. And he was shocked that that would be taken as negatively by the American public. Yeah, that's that's a little tone deaf. Yeah. yeah. Um, Maybe he did something better. Yeah. Well, so here we go with the, you know, the, the Lyndon Johnson, you know, complete whiplash. Uh, so you've got this terrible stuff happening in Vietnam. Uh, but then 
um, on the 6th of August, uh, he signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 into law. Um, the law eliminated literacy tests and other provisions that had been used to disqualify African-Americans from voting, and it would dramatically increase the number of registered black American voters. For example, in Mississippi, the number of black voters would increase eightfold between the 7% that were registered in 1964 and the 59% that were registered in 1968. So, um, you know, gives you a sense of just how repressive, you know, some of these states were about keeping african-americans from voting and how what a game changer the voting rights act was i often get upset about how much voter suppression is still a thing but mm-hmm. this you know puts that in perspective very it certainly much does. so yeah. yeah yeah well and continuing the president johnson's run here on the 10th um he signed the housing and urban development act of 1965 into law uh in signing the bill johnson commented Quote, education matters a great deal. Health matters. Jobs matter. Equality of opportunity and individual dignity matter very much. But legislation and labors in all of these fields can never succeed unless and until every family has the shelter and the security, the integrity and the independence and the dignity and the decency of a proper home. Making sure that Americans had homes was a federal priority at one point in this country. I know that's very <laughs> hard to believe now, but at one point we did actually care about that. The very next day, uh, the 11th uh, of August, 1965, at seven o'clock in the evening, in the mostly African-American section of Watts in Los Angeles, a white California highway patrol officer, Lee W. Minicus, pulled over a black driver, Marquette Fry on suspicion of drunken driving. The other man in the car, who was Fry's brother Ronald, ran home and brought the men's mother, Rena Price, to the scene. By the time Fry failed the test, the crowd of curious spectators had grown from about 25 people to several hundred. Marquette's mother began scolding him for drinking, and Marquette, who until then had been peaceful and cooperative, pushed her away and moved into the crowd, cursing and shouting at the officers that they would have to kill him to take him to jail. As the tension increased, the family members and officers began scuffling. More highway patrolmen arrived, and Los Angeles Police Department officers were called in, and the Watts riots began. By the time that the rioting ended six days later, 34 people had been killed, 1,032 had been injured, and 3,952 arrested, and there was more than $40 million of damage. Wow. Yeah. I never, I didn't know the story of uh, how that began, which isn't super noble or anything, but it's right. it's a very interesting family drama. Well, you know, and, <laughs> you know, and like I had presumed that this was the result of you know, like like the Rodney King um, riots, you know, were the result of white officers doing something bad and, and extra legal. But what I clipped out of this was that the reason that the officer pulled over uh, the gentleman was because. Uh, another motorist who also happened to be black had flagged him down and said that car is driving crazy and they're going to kill someone. And so that's why he took off and pulled him over in the first place and then found he was drunk. So, you know, it wasn't like a, a, a an abuse of power or anything. It was just a bad situation that escalated really tragically. Yeah. And I, I always thought that the, you know, they were uh, as a result of protest to begin with, like, Right. Sort of how modern day Portland gets into these messes, like a (laughs) protest, protest starts and then it gets a little out of control, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, 
this is a totally different beginning, but obviously the same underlying tensions and racial problems oh, are what yes. leads to the riots themselves. Yeah, yeah. I'm not mean, going to underplay that. Yeah. Well, let me take us over to Beatles by the month. I was going to say, that? I feel like there's a fair amount of Beatles news. Uh, so maybe you should just take us through the rest of this since this is your baby. Okay, let's go on a journey. Um, so on the 15th of August, the Beatles performed the first stadium concert in the history of rock. Uh, they played before an audience of 55,600 people at Shea Stadium in New York City. Um, their 1965 North American tour would take them to outdoor stadiums in Atlanta, Chicago, Minneapolis, and San Diego, as well as to arenas at Toronto, Houston, Portland, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Um, yeah. And so the Portland show, I, I just happened to know a bunch about because I'd been to a recent, uh, museum show here at the Oregon history museum. Um, that was just about. It was about the Beatles, but it was also specifically about this show. Um, they played two shows in Portland um, on August 22nd at the Memorial Coliseum. In the audience was Allen Ginsberg, who wrote a poem about it called Portland Coliseum. And backstage were Carl Wilson and Mike Love. Uh, and this would be the only time the Beach Boys and the Beatles met in person. Wow. So, um and at the same time, help, uh, the movie help was in the theaters and it was playing at the 82nd street driving, the, the <laughs> f- aforementioned 82nd, yep. 80 deuce and, uh, and the Baghdad on Hawthorne, which oh, is wow. very near to my house. Yeah. Um, still a theater now, uh, of course not showing anything at the moment. And, uh, an, an engine had blown out on the, the plane before landing at PDX, uh, <laughs> wow. So they were very relieved to be on the ground. Um, yeah. And John, John had even scribbled out some, like, if anybody gets this kind of note, and I don't know the the contents of that off the top of my head, but it was, he was very much like writing his, the, the last things he wanted people to, to know. That's um, wild. So they were pretty scared on this plane ride. Um, and they got in, you know, like one in the afternoon and then p- played a show at three and then at, uh, later at... Uh, later that evening and tickets were, this is also cool in, in the Coliseum over the two shows, there were 20,000 people who attended, uh, the ticket prices were $4, $5 and $6. (laughs) And there were also a number of pink tickets for the upper levels, which were all free. Wow. So, so people conceivably went and saw the Beatles for free in Portland. That's amazing. Um, and the Memorial Coliseum also uh, was the site of many old timey comic book shows, if I remember correctly. I know I went to at least one there. Yeah, yeah, that used to be in in some of the the side areas, the side parts of the as you know convention halls. It was uh, usually not in the main space because they weren't that well attended. <laughs> right. But I've been to my share. I bought many, uh, you know, martial law and Wolverine t shirt, and I'll, I had my favorite alpha flight t-shirt um that <laughs> that i got there is as well as a zillion comics but yeah. um uh yeah th- that was just when it was all boxes on tables the mm-hmm. old the old school way oh um, yeah the smell of paper pulp and and not recently laundered t-shirts in the air <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh so wrapping up beatles by the month on the 27th um of august the beatles visited elvis presley at his home in the bel air neighborhood of los angeles california um so also so after recently meeting with the beach boys they got to go visit elvis in bel air um it would be the only time the band and the singer met 
as well. So at the request of the band, no recordings or photographs of the occasion were taken for publication. Wow. So, so yeah, in a very, in that week, they, they met the Beach Boys and then they met Elvis. Uh, I think they were probably, I mean, from what I've read and seen in documentaries, they were very excited to meet Elvis. Um, but they also were in this sort of competitive uh, music making mode with the Beach Boys. So that was probably all, both, both of them very influential on them. Uh, August 1965 had a lot of stuff going on. It, it was very eventful month. So uh, let's go ahead and take our first break of the show. Um, and when we come back, we will start talking about uh, some of the comics that came out in this month. So stay tuned. Okay, welcome back to August 1965 on Marvel by the Month. Uh, the first issue we're going to talk about this episode is Fantastic Four number 44, which was written by Stan Lee. The art was by Jack Kirby, inked by Joe Sinnott. And the story is called The Gentleman's Name is Gorgon. So this is the uh, first part of a four-part story that introduces the Inhumans uh, to the Marvel Universe. It also recasts Medusa as a hero, um, or at least not a villain, um, as she has been with the Frightful Four. Um, the other thing that's really uh, interesting and, and I think important about this issue is that it is the start of Joe Sinnott's long run as the inker on Fantastic Four. So I'm going to do my little uh, little aside here with a little bit of biography on Joe Sinnott. So uh, he would be Kirby's uh, Fantastic Four inker for the rest of Kirby's run on the book. Um, and he would continue to ink uh, Fantastic Four long after Kirby leaves. Uh, he would continue to be the regular anchor on the book through 1981. Um, wow. Yeah. So had a very, very long run. He, I, I think he might be the person who has touched the most issues of Fantastic Four. He's often undercredited part of the Lee Kirby era of Fantastic Four. And he had been around for a while prior to this point. Um, he started his career with Western Comics uh, and Dell Comics. Um, he started drawing for Atlas Comics in 1951, so that's when he started working with Stan Lee. When the comics industry crashed in 1957, um, Stan Lee was ordered by the publisher, his wife's cousin, Martin Goodman, uh, to use up all of Atlas's in-house art before hiring out any new work. So there was a extended period of time where there was no new stuff being developed for Atlas. They were just going through the backlog of things that they hadn't published yet. But Sinnott was one of the very first artists that Lee brought back after a six-month layoff. During that time, he had also lined up some work uh, for Charlton Comics. Um, so that prevented him from taking on a lot of early Marvel work. Um, he did return to Marvel in 1965, um, and he would remain almost completely exclusive to Marvel until 2019, until literally last year. <laughs> what? <laughs> at, yes, at the age of 92. That's when he stopped being a regular comic book inker. I, I was still impressed by the 16 year run on Fantastic Four. Yeah. You know, bef before you tacked on the 20 years basic or 15 other years of working for Marvel yeah. or Atlas. Yeah. And then, yeah, that's dedication. His last regular gig that he did for Marvel uh, was inking the Spider-Man Sunday comic strip in the newspapers. So that's what he did up until literally last year. Uh, he won the uh, the Inkpot and Inkwell Awards, which are com uh, comics industry awards for inking. 
Um, he was inducted into the Inkwell Hall of Fame in 2008 and the Will Eisner uh, Hall of Fame in 2013. Um, upon his induction into it, the Inkwell Hall of Fame Award became known as the Joe Sinnott Award. Um, so that gives you a sense of you know his his esteem inside the industry. You know he he was definitely an artist's artist. Uh, every penciler wanted to work with him. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, and he's still with us. It's rare that you get a really happy story <laughs> out of a, a, yeah. a, 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 you know, comics legend. Um, but Joe Sinnott is that guy, um, a yeah. full long and recognized career. Like yeah. that's just so, <laughs> during your lifetime is so rare. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. And a career that spanned almost 70 years. So that's Joe Sinnott. Um, I'm very excited to have him uh, on the book now because this is I, I kind of when I was like thinking about how I wanted this season of the podcast to go, um, I really wanted to build it around the Fantastic Four because there's a lot of great Fantastic Four stuff that happens in this stretch. Um, and uh, Joe Sinnott's definitely a huge part of that. Uh, so at the start of this story, uh, the Fantastic Four um, are enjoying some very well-deserved downtime. Um, they have just beaten the Frightful Four decisively for the first time. Uh, three of the uh, Frightful Four are in custody, and only Medusa is still at large. Um, and Reed and Sue are settling into domestic life. They just got married um, last month in the Fantastic Four annual. As the story opens, Reed is spending his time trying to perfect a fully automated dishwasher. Um, and, of course, Ben doesn't miss a chance to make fun of him for it. It's Yeah, it's in, uh, it is a whole wall, too, this thing. <laughs> It's a conveyor belts and Kirby, you know, machines. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful dishwasher. I love that the subtitle of this issue uh, is, or what a way to spend a honeymoon. It really lets you know that you are in for a nuanced discussion on gender politics. So that the first panel in this issue is Reed trying to make a dishwasher for Sue and she has got her little frilly apron on and it just just sets the tone. She's got her apron on over her Fantastic Four costume. Just bananas. Yep. And of course, you know, um, the thing essentially calls, you know, Reed a cuck, you know. (laughs) 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 Next thing you know, you'll be inventing something to make doilies. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so yeah um you know understandably because uh, he's a teenage boy in 1965 uh, johnny is bored to tears uh he leaves the baxter building um hops in his sweet corvette and as he's driving away an earthquake seems to hit manhattan um so johnny's like whoa what's going on he's about to turn around and head back to the baxter building to see what's up but turns out medusa is hiding in the car and forces him to drive away at gunpoint. At vacuum gunpoint. Yeah, it's a special gun. Yeah, a gun that will stop his flames. Um, yes. But, you know, he let her go. So it seems like at this point, she's being an extra jerk to come back. But, it, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, she's got her reasons. She's being pursued by someone. Uh, she doesn't tell Johnny uh, much about him. She just says his name is Gorgon. So that's all we know so far. Um, so we cut back to the Baxter building. The rest of the Fantastic Four are being tossed around by the quake inside their headquarters. Uh, suddenly, Ben sees feet poking through the wall. Um, and whoever belongs to these things uh, is climbing up the side of the Baxter building 
by kicking holes in it on the way up. Which is pretty tough. Yeah. It's like it's like if Spider-Man wasn't just sticky. Yeah. So uh, and uh, whoever this mysterious stranger is, he winds up stealing uh, the Fantastic Four's helicopter. We find out later that he's also destroyed their other aerial vehicles uh, so they can't pursue him. So meanwhile, Johnny brings Medusa to a lake near Empire State University. Um, she reveals that she's on the run um, from the person who is responsible for these earthquakes. They wind up uh, getting into a fight, and this wakes up Dragon Man. Uh, he's been snoozing in the lake since Fantastic Four number 35 when <laughs> uh, when Diablo brought Dragon Man to life. And so uh, in the same way that Dragon Man uh, falls in love with Sue, he now develops an instant crush on Medusa. The beauty tames the beast. Yes. And so, uh, and I love Dragon Man. I mean, he's this like gray, fire-breathing, like bipedal dragon who's wearing little maroon swim trunks. Yeah, and he looks, uh, you know, he's shaped more like a, a rhino uh, with wings. Levi, is Dragon Man new to you, or were you aware that he was a character in the Marvel Universe? Dragon Man is new to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's... He's definitely new to me. And he looks more like a dinosaur. Yeah. I always kind of wondered, like, how do you get dragon out of this? Uh, I guess it's the wings and the tail. He breathes fire. Yeah, and the fire breathing. Okay. Um, and he's nonverbal, right? He just yes, does stuff. Yeah. yeah. As this is all happening, let's see, uh, Gorgon arrives in the helicopter that he stole from the Fantastic Four, and he lands it near Johnny's Corvette because Johnny drives one of the most conspicuous vehicles in the world. Um, <laughs> so then uh, Gorgon uh, continues to try to uh, capture um, uh, Medusa and Dragon Man's not having it. So they start fighting, um, which leaves uh, Medusa free to jump in Johnny's vet and uh, steal it and try to get away. Um, but then Dragon Man uh, chases after her. Uh, he flies through the air. He picks up the car and he flies away with it with Gorgon in hot pursuit in the helicopter. It's pretty bonkers the, the, <laughs> when he uh, I mean, it's already totally crazy. And just trying to think of what Dragon Man's been doing for what I assume is a few months chilling at the bottom of the lake. But he's like an android. So, you know, maybe he's just sort of went into sleep mode. So Johnny, um, after all the excitement is over, he wakes up. Um, he flies back toward the Baxter building um, where Back at the Baxter building, uh, Reed is stretching out the window to see if he can figure out what's going on because they don't have any of their aerial vehicles, so they can't fly around the city. Um, so it's just up to him to just stretch up and see what he can see. Um, <laughs> suddenly, he winds up getting pulled out of the window, uh, and Ben is hanging onto him, and then Sue grabs onto Ben, and she's hanging onto him. And so the three of them are just being carried across the rooftops of the city. And this is pretty much a Looney Tunes move at this point. You know, yeah. it's just getting three yeah. stooges ridiculous yes uh, yeah <laughs> oh and it gets it gets crazier because um, it, it turns out that dragon man was the one who was pulling reed along um he was trying to defend medusa um and uh uh so then the uh, fantastic four wind up tussling with dragon man uh, medusa says that gorgon has been following her halfway across the world and here he comes um so now gorgon's back in this thing one of the things that I, I think is kind of cool and um, he, he has like Gorgon has a very juggernaut quality to him. Like he just he keeps coming after his his prize and um, he just crashes through everything in the way. 
He bursts through walls. He causes earthquakes with his feet. Um, I mean, he's he's a formidable uh, opponent, and he's pretty freaky looking too. Yeah, he has sort of a like. He looks a little bit like if you know Pan or a Satter was a professional wrestler. Like they yeah. have, he has like the goat goat legs, so the joints, the knee joints, uh, or the ankle, I guess, is high and backwards. Um, and the substantial lower face. Yes, <laughs> he does. He does have the the earmark of Kirby villain. A very <laughs> weird face. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this turns into a big old rooftop brawl. Uh, Dragon Man's attacking anyone except Sue, who tries to get close to Medusa. Gorgon continues to relentlessly pursue Medusa. And uh, Gorgon refers to him and Medusa as being of the same race. And he says that he needs to bring her back to her people. And this piques Reed's curiosity. He stops Ben from fighting any further because he wants to learn more about this hidden race that Gorgon's talking about because <laughs> he's a scientist. It's know. like Reed's kryptonite is curiosity. Like, whoa, whoa, we got to stop fighting because I'm very interested in this guy's lineage. Yes. Uh, you know? <laughs> yep. So for a moment, it seems like everything's going to kind of settle down. Um, and then uh, Johnny bursts onto the scene and messes everything up as usual. So now a bunch more fighting ensues. Dragon Man grabs Sue and flies off. Uh, Gorgon catches Medusa finally and to make sure that the FF doesn't interfere any further he stomps on the rooftop and brings the whole building crumbling down and that's where we end the issue what did you guys think of this thing um, first of all like had either of you read this before and and what were some of your takeaways going and reading it uh, this time for the show like for, for me this is this is my first time reading this issue because admittedly um, I didn't connect with uh, Fantastic Four when I was when I was younger, so they I knew that they were there, of course, but they were just kind of off to the side. So mm. I've kind of discovered them, you know, you know, by you know listening to and participating in the podcast. Um, I still don't find it to be the most compelling story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's there's something about the I don't know if it's the dynamic in the family. I don't know if it's the distribution of the powers. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something about this quartet that just never quite clicks with me in the way in which the X-Men do or the cosmic stuff does, mm-hmm. uh, the way in which the, the, the Avengers do. Fantastic Four always kind of keeps me at arm's, at arm's length, and that is not a terrible <laughs> Reed Richards joke. <laughs> but but what, I w- what I will say, though, is uh, it is incredible to watch the evolution in the art, this yeah. issue. Uh, versus the first, um, the first issue um, is you know, night and day doesn't even cover it. Yeah, this the, the the amount of growth and the amount of uh, detail, the amount of like it's evolution here is 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 phenomenal. I think the actually the, the one the most interesting thing about this is the introduction of the domesticity. Like it's like, hey, what is the other side? Yeah, of of being you know being a collection of, of superheroes and it's it's laundry yeah yep. it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's cooking it's uh it's it's uh intra-family uh politics yeah to me that stuff is is much more interesting than than their powers and their their adventures yeah and i think that's yeah. where they get um when i really got into fantastic four it was more about their family and when they were having kids and and then the weird risks everyone was at and those and what Sue would do to defend the kids. And that was where it became 
just by magnitudes more interesting to me, but I was also aging up. And so I was very much ready for anything but typical superhero punch him up stuff. So as these stories started to get to that, it was more interesting to me, even as, you know, I'm middle schooler. Yeah, I, I always uh, I think one of the things I like about the Fantastic Four is the fact that they do really feel like this almost 1950s throwback. Like, you know, they're not really they're superheroes, but they're not that's kind of not what they lead with. I mean, they're explorers, they're adventurers to some degree. They're scientists and they're a family, but you know, like there's not a ton of super compelling fantastic four villains, like relative to like the X-Men or Spider-Man or, you know, some of those series. But yeah, like I think the interpersonal stuff, uh, whenever you get a chance to see that, I think that's where the book really shines. For me, the gold standard of, uh, of, of a rogues gallery is batman yeah, yeah yeah and then number two is and very close is is spider-man and yeah i was like ah you know i was i was kind of like in my head like ah, you know fantastic four didn't have really any bill. and then like i stopped myself mid-thought i'm like actually i think we're only a few issues away from galactus yeah which yeah, is, we are yes <laughs> yeah which to me is still one of the most incredible creations in in comic books yeah that kind of layered villain yeah. that just kind of oh like it's it's the opposite of whatever the the, the anti-hero the the sympathetic villain or, or or whatever it is like to me that character just kind of expands my definition uh as a kid of, yeah. of what characters can be they yeah. can be more than one thing they can be eight different things yep yeah um so yeah so yeah the fantastic four maybe to me doesn't have the most interesting villains up to date but that's about to change. Yeah. Although doom, you know, uh, yeah. and doom becomes more well-rounded or he does and doesn't. It's like Namor. <laughs> he just, yeah, <laughs> both of them are, are great villains, but they're also more complicated as time goes on. We'll definitely have much more to say about Galactus, uh, in a few episodes. Um, but, uh, for right now, um, let's go ahead, uh, take a, a break. Um, and then when we come back, Rob is going to tell us all about, the debut of the Soviet super soldier known as Titanium Man here on Marvel by the Month. Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. We're going to jump into Iron Man versus Titanium Man. This is a very metal story. It's the um, most metal. It is super metal. Uh, so this is Tales of Suspense, uh, number 69 through 71. So we're talking about a number of them. It's wrapping up this month. Uh, it's written by Stan Lee, art by Don Heck with Vince Coletta and Mickey DeMeo, who is Mike Esposito. Uh, under his, you know, name so he can work for DC and Marvel <laughs> at the same time. Uh, and Wally Wood. Yeah. So lots of, lots of big names on this. Um, it's the, the story, the first story was called, if I must die, let it be with honor. The second is fight on for a world is watching. And the third is what price victory. Oh, wow. Those are three solid titles. <laughs> They're big. They're huge. 
So uh, the three issue story contains the first appearance of the Titanium Man. Um, in previous issues, we learned that communist commissar Comrade Bolsky has selected a team of enslaved scientists to build him a suit of armor. Uh, they're using the Siberian laboratory of the original Crimson Dynamo to create the Titanium Man armor. It's much larger and heavier. The, I mean, the Crimson Dynamo is way bigger than iron man but this is even bigger yes Uh, so it's just this huge heavy tank of an iron man armor style yeah very very much like the uh the iron monger armor from the first iron man almost yeah yeah and uh uh, but bolsky believes that his natural size and strength will keep that from being a vulnerability yeah Uh, and he is huge when the armor is finished the titanium man issues a challenge to iron man to fight in the neutral territory of alberia so they they set up this big deal, uh, the fight between capitalism's greatest military industrialist hero and the Soviet Union's newest armored goon will be televised worldwide. Uh, but since Bolsky can't afford to lose such an important propaganda stunt, he booby traps the battlefield with landmines before the fight even begins. Oh, uh, uh, yes. Uh, cheating. Uh, Hang on, Rob. I just got a text from Levi. Um, he said that he refuses to participate in this segment of the podcast um, because he doesn't like the way uh, that we're throwing shade uh, at uh, the Soviet Union's uh, greatest hero. So uh, I guess I guess he's just going to sit this one out. Um, he oh, says, wow. He says he'll be back on a little later, but I didn't realize he was you know that sensitive about that stuff. So uh, I didn't. I thought he was more of a you know bolshevik style i didn't know he got way into the this severe form of communism yeah i don't know yeah i I guess it's just one of those you know you're in for a penny and for a pound so yeah anyway go ahead and continue yeah we'll we'll try to you know to work our way through this meanwhile as the fight is taking place the countess stephanie de la spirosa is searching for tony stark she's got romantic designs on tony yeah Uh, she breaks into his hotel room and steals an experimental new transistor because she thinks that will somehow get him to come looking for her yeah (laughs) this is wild so she leaves like a little handkerchief behind like embroidered with her initials so he'll know that she's the one who took it but this is just such a weird, I'm going to tease you and then you're going to pursue me. And yeah, she has a very strange idea about how, you know, grown up romantic relationships work. Then again, Tony Stark is a dog. Maybe this has worked in the past. <laughs> True. And he's jilted her at least once, uh, maybe twice because of Iron Man related things right. and, and yes. other things. So, yep, yep. so she's, she's got beef. Yes. Um, During an intermission in the fight, uh, a battered Iron Man returns to Stark's hotel to get this experimental transistor, but it's gone. So he finds this handkerchief uh, and does some quick detective work to figure out what happened. And then he goes, uh, as he's going back to the fight, he tells Happy Hogan to go looking for the Countess and recover the transistor for him. He knows it's pretty crucial. He's he's very matched and this transistor will help him yeah uh you know have enough power to 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 maybe win yeah because at this point i mean it's a combination of you know how good the titanium man armor is and and all the traps that the titanium man laid on the battlefield before this um iron man's you know it, it could go either way for him at this point um so he he desperately needs an advantage to turn this thing around and so as he he goes back into the battle, it's basically, you know, round round two. Uh, so Happy uh, 
hears that he should go track down the, the countess and get the transistor. Uh, he understands that this is very important to Iron Man. And so Happy is willing to run onto the battlefield as this second round has started um, with the transistor, but he's hit by a blast from the titanium man. Oh, no. So how? Yeah, so he's risked his life to get this transistor to him, uh, and he appears to die on the battlefield, which gives Iron Man the transistor, calls him boss, revealing that he knew Iron Man and Stark were one and the same. Yeah. So this is uh, finally starting to hint at people are smarter than they seem. Uh, <laughs> Iron Man plugs in the transistor and turns to get revenge for his fallen friend, which is where Tales of Suspense 71 starts. So yeah. this is... As far as we know, Iron Man thinks, I mean, I think we think as readers that Happy has died. Iron Man thinks Happy's died. Yes. Uh, and that's where that issue ended. Yeah. So. Because we, yeah. we don't we don't get a hint that Happy is still alive until the start of the last issue, the, the, the one that came out this month, Tales of Suspense 71. Yeah. Yeah. And so with with this new transistor installed, Iron Man just makes mincemeat of the titanium man. Yeah. Uh, He's too fast and too powerful for the bulky, slow moving Soviet armor. So Bolsky was wrong. Uh, (laughs) Iron Man takes him. uh, Yes. So sorry for the sympathizers. Levi. Uh, (laughs) Iron Man uh, takes his time picking him apart because he knows he's also doing this in front of the cameras that are broadcasting this around the world. Yes. Uh, he, He then leaves the defeated titanium man hung up on a boulder and leaves him for the communist masters to deal with. Uh, he says, lucky for you, I'm not a red. I can't continue to attack a helpless enemy, so I'll leave you here till your fellow bully boys come for you. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's so great. Like, there's a scene where, like, the titanium man is just, like, hung up between, like, this this rock outcroppings, and Iron Man's just, like, pulling his helmet off and pulling his boots off. <laughs> just, like, just leaving bits and pieces of him all over the place. It's really, like, he didn't just beat him. He humiliated him. And it's not until after the fight that Iron Man learns that Happy is not dead. So he still thinks he's he's getting done with this. And he's so angry and so grief-stricken. Um, but Happy was taken to the hospital just barely clinging to life. Yeah. Uh, so... Pepper Potts and the Countess de las Perosa are both at the hospital. Um, Pepper's there because of her love for Happy. The Countess is there because she wants to see Tony Stark when he arrives. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Tony is back home with the usual um, trope of uh, he's plugged into the wall and recharging his nearly depleted chest plate. So he he again expended enough energy to nearly die. Of course, Pepper doesn't know this. She thinks Tony's just a jerk who couldn't be bothered to one, be there for Iron Man fighting the titanium man or for happy. Yeah. So she just, she is disgusted with Tony. Yeah. Uh, He's just a bad boss. um, Yeah. As as far as she can tell, you know, and, and also like this story really kind of underscores just, I mean, it's meant to to illustrate like, Oh, it's so hard for him to have a secret identity. Look, you know, it's like, he looks like he can't be there for his friends, but what it really did to me as a reader was just be like, yeah, that's why Iron Man shouldn't have a secret identity. Like, <laughs> yeah. like it just does not work for this character. I, and I don't think they're trying to set it up 
you know, they're just they're just trying to show all of the the complexity of these two this dual life. Right. But, uh, right. but it, that's what it feels like to me, too. I'm like, yeah, just get over the stupid secret identity. Thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and and as we get uh, when we get to the final segment of the podcast, we'll talk about, you know, a secret identity like and the, the problems it causes in a personal life that I think works a lot better. Um, but yeah, the, yeah. The Iron Man secret identity just it, it doesn't. I, I'm so glad they finally got rid of it uh, with the character. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it like works about as well as Thor's does. It's just, it feels very <laughs> unnecessary. So finally, Tony is able to make his way to the hospital. Um, Pepper tells him that there's not much hope for Happy's recovery. And, and he's like, throw money at it. Uh, the, the, the countess attempts to shoehorn into their conversation. And Tony tells her to take a hike, which she's not thrilled about. No. So yeah. Uh, he just blows her right off, which is not going to make things better with her because she's already acting pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, Pepper asks Tony where he was during the fight. And all Tony can do is come up with a lame excuse about having a business deal to attend to. So yeah. he just sounds like scuzzy jerk. Yep. Um, and it's enough to make Pepper decide she's not in love with Tony after all. Uh, yeah. The issue ends with a surgeon revealing that Happy did survive the operation, but he's dangerously weak and there's nothing more they can do for him. To be continued. Oh, the drama. Yeah. So Tony, uh, he won this big propaganda victory for the United States, defeated uh, his one of his toughest enemies to date. Um, but he's lost the respect of Pepper. He may have lost his best friend or his, I don't know, best friend. Tony Stark doesn't have a lot of friends. Happy might be his best friend. His um, paid best friend. His, his, his hired best friend. friend. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so it's like in every other way he's lost. So it, I think this is one of the uh, the more extended uh, Iron Man stories that we've read so far. Um, and, you know, Titanium Man is certainly a villain who shows up time and time again. It's also interesting seeing how they're like Stan is trying to get his head around it's like okay how do i tell an extended story in these half issue increments you know so this is still you know it's a split book with captain america so he each chunk of the story is 13 pages at a time so you know this would be like an issue and a half um and he still manages to tell you know a pretty pretty solid and robust story yeah and it might be the first this is something that struck me almost enough to be my panel of the month but uh it's it may be the first time they show the uh the face of the person inside the mask they do sort of yeah. this cutaway yep so to show the face of fear on bolsky on the titanium man they um he's got this sort of grim light green mask uh that's very robotic but they just sort of carve away part of it so you can see his face through it and yeah uh and that convention is so helpful <laughs> moving forward to uh to see real emotion yes. on on Iron Man's face too as well as you know other masked people but mainly for the these helmeted you know like Iron Man think of the Iron Man movie you see these weird close-ups of Tony Stark with spherical you know data displays wrapping around his face right, and right. weird yep. lights uh or Robert Downey Jr however you want to uh slice that but it's just um, that this is the first time I think I've seen that convention. So I was like, way to go, Don Heck. Yeah, there you, you go. Know, it's you do some great stuff, but mostly I'm just like, oh, well, you're making the scene happen. That's cool. And this was just <laughs> something, some new way to do it. Something it's like almost Ditko esque in the 
just deciding to take the mask away and yeah. let readers figure out that it's not really gone. Yeah. It's sort of like when, you know, Peter Parker's spider sense goes off and you see like a superimposition of half the, the Spider-Man mask on there to let you know, it's like, Oh yeah, that's his spider power. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of Spidey, um, we can go ahead and take a break here. Um, and then when we come back, I would love to talk about uh, the issue of amazing Spider-Man that came out this month. If that's, Oh yeah. Good to let's, you. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. All right, cool. Well uh, yeah, everybody uh, stick with us. Uh, we'll be right back after a very short break. <laughs> Okay, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Spider-Man number 30 right now. This issue was written by Stan Lee. The plot and art were by Steve Ditko. The story is called The Claws of the Cat. I believe we have Levi back with us. Uh, Levi, I, I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I kind of didn't realize that you were going to be that sensitive about you know our portrayal of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, I don't think we we were too rough on them. Um, but you know, uh, we'll try to be more sensitive about that going forward next time you're on. Yeah. Would you comrade? Thank you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you know, we hate to offend a guest, even if we may have differences of opinion. Uh, um, yeah, let's have, let's have glass nose now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's all drink vodka. And by the way, juice. I don't know if you, if you have seen the death of Stalin on Netflix. I have not no. yet. And I really need but to. It is, so good and it's not like one of those you know laugh out loud you know big belly laugh things but i with the exception of a little bit of horror in it because it is dealing with history i just sat there and smiled through the whole thing <laughs> steve buscemi is as uh, nikita khrushchev is oh a scream <laughs> just, I, I can't recommend it enough that could pitch it to me yeah, yeah just yeah. <laughs> that's awesome hopefully you know we'll be able to get through the rest of the podcast with no issues. There's no communism in this one. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, which we apologize for. <laughs> <all right. laughs> this, <laughs> this is purely, uh, the story of a very generic supervillain. Um, uh, so we're not talking about this issue because the villain is all that interesting. Uh, he's absolutely not. Uh, he's an extremely generic cat burglar called cat burglar. Um, <laughs> And I'm just going to really quickly summarize his part in the story, because as far as I'm concerned, it's not the interesting part. So he he starts a, a crime spree by robbing J. Jonah Jameson's apartment. Um, this prompts Jonah to issue a thousand dollar reward for his capture. Uh, Spidey decides to take Jonah up on it, um, which is great because then we get to see Jonah freaking out more and more as Spidey gets closer to catching the cat burglar, because then Jonah will have to give him the reward in front of you know television cameras and the embarrassment would kill him. Um, ultimately the cops wind up getting credit for the cat burglars arrest, um, which Spidey assists with, uh, but Jameson doesn't have to pay Spidey the reward money. Um, but he does have to pay Peter Parker for photos of the arrest. So kind of everybody wins. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's really nothing to this, this character. Like y you could have just, you know, like plugged in generic supervillain a, um, and you would have gotten, the same effect it's just he's 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 like a replacement level villain he's a henchman yeah the only thing i thought uh was worthy of this guy is that he lasted for even as long as he did yeah being chased by spider-man yeah he, and and a lot of police i i was impressed and i thought maybe that would turn into something more interesting it did not no it did not 
Um, and the reason I think that he lasted for the full issue is because uh, Peter Parker had other things on his mind, uh, this issue. And that's really why I wanted to talk about this one. Um, so this issue um, contains what is basically the definitive end of Peter Parker and Betty Brant's relationship. So it had certainly been rocky for a while, um, but this is where it all falls apart. Um, so, you know, just to recap, uh, folks who might not have been listening all along, uh, Betty Brant uh, was Peter Parker's first girlfriend. Um, they met at a time when other girls weren't even giving Peter the time of day. Um, their relationship did hit uh, uh, its first bump, just very minor incident uh, when her brother was apparently killed in a battle between Spider-Man and Dr. Octopus. Uh, you know, just those little things that get in the way of young love. Yeah, everybody has those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it turns out he actually wasn't killed, but she doesn't know that yet. So that's another thing. Um, but anyway, this ensures that Peter could never tell her he was Spider-Man. So there's only so far the relationship could really ever go. Um, and then as, you know, other girls like Liz Allen and Mary Jane Watson start appearing in Peter's life, Betty starts feeling like Peter's two-timing her. And you know what? Considering that he kept disappearing and being super evasive about his whereabouts, I think that's a legitimate reaction to his behavior. Yeah, um, this is uh, the secret identity doesn't always serve you so well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course it was his Spider-Manning that was responsible, but, it, you know, not any infidelity on his part. But, you know, you understand how this could really uh, erode a relationship. So things have been really rocky for some time. Um, and this is the issue where it all falls apart. Before we kind of dive into it, uh, any thoughts on like... Peter Parker's romantic life in general to this point or Betty Brant in particular. I had forgotten that. And even having read the masterworks and things like that, I had forgotten that she was the first uh, real girlfriend for him. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, as you get farther along, you think of Gwen Stacy and, and, and Mary Jane, of course. But uh, I, I thought she was like more of a, a an adult and which was interesting uh, yeah. I didn't re really remember her as that, but she's an adult working a job, a single lady uh, and willing to date Peter, which is cool, uh, except <laughs> his secret identity is exactly the wrong thing he needs for that relationship. Yeah. And she, yeah, her showing up for him with, you know, Aunt May and, and at other times was really touching. So yeah. th these were really warm moments in the comic. It's interesting on page nine. Um, you, you look at her dialogue, you read her dialogue, and um, there's a there's a certain kind of tragedy because you see she kind of exposes a little bit about what she believes her value to be. Yeah. If you look at you know, she says, I want a man who has a good, steady job and who comes home each night to his pipe, his paper, and to me. Yeah. She places herself third on that list. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit of an earlier panel where she talks about, I, I'm ashamed of myself for being so shaken up by the scorpion. Like, the way in which she denigrates herself on this on this page is I, I know it's also indicative of the time, but it's it's also not. It's yeah, it's also heartbreakingly current. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's just jump into that scene, because this is like I think this is the scene that the whole issue really revolves around. Um, so it's it starts with Betty calling Peter up. Um, she says she'd like to see him as soon as possible. Um, and Peter, who's not particularly experienced in the ways of love, uh, he at first thinks this is a good thing when a woman says something like that to you. Um, 
And when he arrives, uh, she tells him that Ned Leeds, uh, who's a reporter at the Daily Bugle, uh, has asked her to marry him. Um, so Peter kind of panics and he decides to go for broke. He's getting ready to tell her that he's Spider-Man. Um, and as he's preparing to do so, she interjects and she reminds him what happened to her brother. Uh, she said she could never love an adventurer, a man who risks his life every day. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where she leads into the, you know, what Levi just said about, you know, she's looking for a man who has a good steady job, uh, you know, who's dependable, who comes home uh, each night. Um, and she thought Peter was that person. He was a good student, a hard worker. He even tried to support his aunt by taking pictures to the Daily Bugle. So, you know, she's like, oh, this is the boy. You know, this is who I've been waiting for. This He's sensitive. He's hardworking. He's practical. He's down to earth. Like, this is who I'm looking for. Um, but of course, as she's describing all this, Peter's just getting more and more worked up because he knows he's not any of those things. And it's a secret he's been keeping from her. Um, and, and this is where he realizes like, this is never going to work because I'm living a lie. She's in love with the lie. And that's that. I love it because it's kind of the opposite of, I mean, I, there, there are also these, I'm trying again, sort of glossing past the problematic depiction of, 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 of how Betty thinks and, and as a woman right. at all, as a woman in this time and as a woman, you know, to be, to be thinking of herself in this way. Uh, but just as a story piece and as of you know these times where it was always like Jane Foster thinks Thor is so great, but Don Blake is so, so, right. uh, uh, people usually fall in love with the the hero, the the big glamorous, famous version. Yeah. And ironically, Betty knows Spider Man. She's interacted with Spider Man on a, a few occasions and wants nothing like Spider Man. She yeah. wants the this normal guy who's smart and dependable. And and in fact, he is the opposite. So it's just this that sort of twist where people are i mean tony stark may be an exception because he's super rich um but uh <laughs> everybody else is usually in love with the hero and the and there's the this crux and this problem of the you know the the normal person who is the hero really loving them so it's uh it's funny it's funny that this is the the flip of that and it yeah. seems so dick ditko to do that it's also it, it's kind of heartbreaking to watch peter getting more and more wound up um as this is going on because you know he's he's recognizing you know she's in love with this vision of him that is not real and he just he he blows up at her and he says i get the picture ned Leeds is the guy for you i guess it was always him he's just what you want a plain hard-working average joe well, goody for both of you. Go ahead and marry him. You probably deserve each other. What difference does it make to me? And he storms out. Um, and then that leaves Betty feeling hurt and confused um, because after Peter has left, she reveals that she was trying to tell Peter that he was the one she loves, but he left before she could get there. And she says, why wouldn't he listen? What is it that always stands between us? The one secret he keeps locked within him, the secret he never shares or talks about. It's, it's, the guy whose name is on the cover of the book. I mean, the book is not called The Amazing Peter Parker. And it's tragic because he doesn't give her a chance to make that decision for herself. And, you know, but, but you know, Peter Parker is a, is a young man. You know, he has both, you know, uh, hormones and, uh, 
and spider venom, you know, coursing through his veins. So of course he <laughs> sees this as a slight, as a direct attack against him. You know, of course he blows up in this moment. Yeah. You have two frightened, hurt, you know, people that are just poised to to miss each other. And yeah. that's that's what makes these two I mean, there's a number of reasons why I think these two pages, nine and nine and ten are tragic, but the the writing here is fantastic. And I think Ditko's art is bananas. Yeah. Um, the the expression on 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 Betty's face and what would this be? Uh, panel five. You know, when she says, Don't mention Spider Man. If Ned were anything like him, I wouldn't even consider, you know, his offer. You know, you he get he can convey anguish, you know, in, in that panel. It is yeah, these page these two pages, the whole I think the whole issue itself is phenomenally drawn yeah but these two pages Mm -hmm. are are crazy they're so yes you you could tell that this is what this is what ditko wanted to get to like he you know he plotted this whole issue he he didn't have a lot of interest in the cat burglar obviously like he couldn't even come up with a name for the character like this stuff you know he's doing it because it's pro forma it's it's what's expected in a superhero comic but you can tell that what he really wanted to be getting into was the relationship uh, dynamic. Um, and that's where, you know, that's what really elevates this issue. If you look at these little notes, like Peter's hair and his collar of his shirt, as it's progressing, they're becoming more unkempt. Yeah. Like his collar pops out a little bit. He's uh, he uh, just these little notes. Um, and and then there's this more obvious things like Betty has these sort of surprise um uh whatever this emotion drawn above her just these spikes of surprise and yeah. and uh it, like like a spider sense um so it's he's done things to indicate the emotion in this sort of uh graphic way but also just these subtle tones of of having the the character sort of breaking down uh the, in appearance and yeah. i thought that was really uh, it grabbed me and i was i just they're little tiny notes, but they they really help to to sell the emotion and bring it home. Yeah, for sure. So Peter has stormed out. I mean, fortunately, he's got the cat burglar to go chase and take his mind off of you know his lady troubles for a bit. Betty keeps calling him. She keeps trying to call him at home. Um, he refuses to speak to her, which is kind of a jerk move. Um, and, you know, for all the times that Peter's heroic impulses get in the way of his happiness, which does happen a lot. Um, every now and then you get a situation like this where like sometimes he's just kind of a creep uh, and he earns his bad luck. You know, like he's been lying to this girl. He's now he's like just ghosting on her. You know, he's he's shutting her out. Um, so, you know, it's like, ah, oh, Peter, you got some room for growth here, my friend. Yeah. Learn to uh, communicate better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and learn to leave people space to communicate to you. You know, it's yeah, just. Yeah. Um, so, uh, he, Peter, uh, encounters Betty one final time in the issue, um, when he goes back to the bugle to sell Jameson his pictures, because of course Betty works there. Um, so, you know, Betty tries to talk to him. He brushes her off and he just says, why bother Betty? There's nothing more for us to say. Leeds proposed to you and he's the kind of guy you want. So let's just leave it at that. Um, and then the story ends on this panel. Uh, it's a very famous panel. Uh, it's a ghostly outline of Spider-Man, um, and he's standing between Betty and Peter with his arms outstretched, coming between them and keeping them apart. And it's just like 
I mean, it's it's a very on the nose visual metaphor, but it's also just like a really beautifully composed panel um, that just kind of sums up. It's like, and here's the thesis of our story, you know, <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> um, but it's yeah, it, it's great. I mean, it just ties a bow on it um, and really drives it home. Let's just go ahead and talk about what panels stuck out at us uh, this month. Sure. Yeah. Mine was uh, more Ditko. It's um, <laughs> and, it, and it really comes back to some of what we were talking about with Fantastic Four and Galactus. Um, it's Strange Tales number 138, uh, the Doctor Strange story, page four, panel one. It's full page. So one panel um, It is uh, eternity introducing itself. And yes. I remember the first time that I saw Eternity, this personification of a cosmic entity um, as a middle schooler, my mind was totally blown, like a, similar to Galactus, uh, where this was even bigger. Like yeah. I was just walking around trying to wrap my mind around this personification of of endless time. Yeah. And the, the concept that, of eternity. Yeah. That encompasses all things. And in, in this sort of weird, uh, flamboyantly dressed or silhouetted shape with planets and stars inside of it. Yeah. Um, so the, the, I think eternity is like the most Ditko character ever. Uh, I mean, it's so like to describe it for folks who have not ever seen eternity, uh, so it's an enormous silhouette of a caped person. It has sort of like a halo and then there's like kind of tentacles coming out from the head and neck. Um, and then all of the negative space of the character is a cosmic space scene. So you're seeing, like you said, Rob, like, you know, stars and planets and comets and, and what have you in there, like in the shadows uh, of the character. Um, and it's just like, it's a super arresting visual I, I mean, this character shows up time and time again. I think, honestly, the reason that he keeps popping back up again is because he's just so much fun to look at and, and to draw. Yeah, this is just one of those places where comics does something so unimaginable, like literally unimaginable until you see that someone has imagined it and made it real. <laughs> uh, it's so, so this is, again, it's one of those things where I, I still don't have the, the vocabulary or eloquence to, to describe what that does to your brain when you're a kid yeah. and you see something that uh, you, you can't even you, you previously couldn't imagine, nor did you even try to fathom something like that. And then it's there. Yeah. And now you are trying to wrap your mind around it. And it's, it really changes your perspective. And I think it's part of the things, one of the things that started to make me uh, explore religion and spiritual concepts and physics and metaphysics, you know, uh, it, it's because you're confronted with something like this. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my uh, panel of the month is from an issue that um, we didn't focus on uh, this month, but it's just something that jumped out at me. So this is from Tales to Astonish, number 73, um, page five, panel one of the Hulk story. Um, and uh, so uh, Bob Powell's the artist on this, but he's working off of Kirby layouts. Um, and without getting into a tedious amount of detail, uh, basically the leader is testing the Hulk's strength. Um, 
He's just trying to figure out like, what are the Hulk's limits? Um, and in this panel, uh, the Hulk is pulling this absolutely massive metal beam out of the walls of the testing room. He's just like bending it like it's nothing, like a piece of spaghetti. Um, and the leader just doesn't know what to do. He says, the tests are worthless. There's no way I can measure his strength. There's nothing he cannot do. I cannot build a device powerful enough to test him with. And I thought it was such a great and unique way to show off just how strong the Hulk is. And the way that they're doing it is by not being able to show how strong he is. Um, you know, like (laughs) I feel like a lesser storyteller would have made up some nonsense way to illustrate it, like having the Hulk juggling planets or something, you know? Um, but by having the super genius character say that he can't come up with a way to test the Hulk's limits is just a great solution. I, I just thought it was a really clever little piece of storytelling. What about you, Levi? Did you pick one out this month? I did. So, um, the panel I picked this month is back in Spider-Man. And it is uh, on page five. And it is this really um, delightfully odd panel um, with Jameson kind of, you know, covering his face and visualizing his worst fears. And it's all these disembodied mouths, you know, hanging around him. Yes. uh, Laughing. And he's got kind of this this grinning Joker style um, Spider-Man head kind of hovering over him, you know, because his biggest concern is that, you know, um, Spider-Man will, you know, get the best of him and he'll be made a laughing stock because he'll always, he will, have, you know, he's been attacking him and his newspapers for so long and it's going to be Spider-Man that, that, that that's not just saves the day, but saves his day. And there's just something about, about the way this panel is constructed. It's small, it's in the corner, yep. but it is just very, God, it just jumped out at me the moment I saw it. Just yeah. uh, the, the the visualization of uh, of Jameson's worst fear is is humiliation, yeah. and, and more so humiliation at the uh, at the hands of Spider Man, somebody whom he knows is his better in yeah. every single way. It's pretty good stuff. Ah, uh, all right, gentlemen, we've reached the end of another episode. Congratulations! Woohoo, Levi! Thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for sticking around for a year. Thank you again for (laughs) inviting me back. What a great way to spend the end of the world. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it's nice to um, to obviously chat with you guys. uh, And, you know, I'm so happy to have uh, these weekly recordings give a tiny little bit of structure to my life. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm just so great. Like Levi, I think this is the third maybe maybe fourth time you've been on so i think the fourth um, now yeah yeah it's just so so delighted that you're always up for this um and uh, i i know we're probably still a little bit out from uh pink hearts uh, is there anything else that you want to be plugging that you're working on right now or is it just a uh uh, stay tuned true believers it's more of a stay tuned true believers um as soon as uh, you have something to share please let us know so we can uh, make everyone aware of that you can always find us marvelbythemonth.com uh email us uh, a textual letter or uh, a voice memo at marvelbythemonth at gmail.com uh what are all the socials uh we have a facebook page at facebook.com slash marvelbythemonth um instagram is at marvelbythemonth and twitter is at marvelbtm because marvelbythemonth has too many characters for twitter and also, uh, thanks to everyone who participated in our little uh, Facebook contest of a week or two ago. 
we gave out four $25 gift certificates to local comic book stores. And uh, it's just, it's lovely to, um, you know, to put a little back into the comics community that has been so great and so generous to us. Um, these shops really need your help. So if you have a few extra bucks and you're in a position to be able to spend them on some comics, uh, now is the time to do it more than ever. Again, thank you gentlemen both for, for doing this again. Um, and uh, until next week, uh, my name's Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. And uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read comics. Mm-hmm.